Welcome back to part 2 of this podcast with Drs Brian Lisi and Kishore Iyer as we continue their discussion on treatment options for patients with short bowel syndrome. Wonderful. Thank you. So now let's go back and let's start simply regarding treatment. How do we best address some of the nutritional issues you've already mentioned? Do all patients with short bowel syndrome need to be on TPM? Uh, that's a great question. Perhaps uh, the, the most important uh, point to remember in, in thinking about management is recognition. I, I, so I, I, think, I think the biggest uh, theme in my perhaps quaternary level practice is unrecognized or under-recognized short bowel and intestinal failure. So so I would, I would say I uh, have a high index of suspicion, I, but perhaps for a gastroenterologist, predominantly gastroenterologist audience, high index of suspicion for your patient with IBD who's had multiple resections and is starting to complain of diarrhea. Ask yourself over and over, could this be short bowel? Could this patient be on the cusp of becoming short bowel? Because this is not a binary decision. The patient doesn't one day not have short bowel and next day have short bowel. Yes, I gave examples of that. But in in most practices, that's not how it works. So there should be a low index of suspicion. and, And it's safer for your patient to err on the side of assuming this is short bowel and intestinal failure overtreat and then show to yourself and to the patient that that overtreatment is not required and safely pull back on what you're doing. So so, uh, in reverse order, based on the brief discussion of physiology we had in reverse order, the priorities then become maintenance of fluid and electrolyte status, maintenance of nutrition, management of symptoms. Maintenance of fluid electrolyte status is easy in the very short term with intravenous fluids as appropriate. In the longer term, if the patients come in twice with dehydration, don't wait for a third time and kidney failure. I need a central line, secure central venous access, establish provision at the minimum of intravenous fluids. And then a decision can be made as to whether that should include provision of calories, macronutrients, micronutrients. The second issue, uh, provision of nutrition. There are certainly situations where we can finesse this and say, could my patient tolerate enteral tube feeding? And that's a whole separate discussion in itself. But, but if you think the patient has short bowel or you've asked yourself, could I be dealing with short bowel? Or on the side of presuming that you are, I have a low threshold to start parental nutrition. It's not dangerous. It's not lethal, contrary to popular legend um, and and support the patient until you can establish for yourself that that's um, perhaps redundant. And then prevention of symptoms, overriding symptom is is, uh, diarrhea, increased GI losses. We can reuse antidiarrheals. And I I tell clinicians, we use them sequentially, we use them additively, we use them appropriately. What does that mean? Uh, we would we might start with something like loperamide titrate up to uh, maximal doses. You might have to tell the local pharmacist that this is for chronic use before you start uh, before the prescription starts getting denied. And then with continued symptoms, instead of swapping the loperamide and saying it doesn't work, we might then consider adding a second agent such as diphenoxalate atropine 
um, uh, and, and we would again titrate that up to maximal doses. I am being a little facetious in saying, I tell people that in my practice, the patient with constipation does not occur. And if that occurs, there is some other underlying pathology or complication you are missing, perhaps a stricture and an unrecognized partial obstruction or a blind loop that requires further investigation. But, but the patient you're having with diarrhea, dehydration, increased ostomy losses should be treated with, with maximal doses and sometimes supra. Uh, therapeutic doses of antidiarrheal for chronic use. And I'll make one point here. When you're recognized that you have a patient with short bowel or intestinal failure, for most clinicians, it's relatively easy to understand malabsorption of macronutrients, fluid, electrolytes, macronutrients. We should therefore make the extension to understand orally administered drugs can also be malabsorbed. And, and we should make allowances for that. Several great teaching points, and I especially like the one, two episodes of dehydration, don't wait for the third, jump into action. Let's not put our patients at risk. So thinking about GLP-2 agents, glucagon-like peptide-2 agents, has changed the management and kind of lives of many patients with short bowel syndrome. Uh, for our listeners here who may not be quite as familiar as you are, how do these agents work and who should we give them to? <sighs> So, so this is a, a game changer in, in, in one phrase uh, for the field of intestinal failure. So I'll, let me take a step back. Uh, physiologically, uh, if you have a normal GI tract, a, as soon as uh, uh, one eats a big meal, there is immediately a postprandial secretion of endogenous GLP-2 from specialized cells, the L cells and the distal ileum and the right colon. Now, naturally occurring GLP-2 has a very, very short half-life, but, but there is really phenomenal work done by an endocrinologist out of Canada than Drucker uh, showing that GLP-2 aids in, uh, in, in simple terms, aids in the absorption of the meal that it was secreted in response to. So recombinant glucagon-like peptide 2, an alteration of a single amino acid in the GLP-2 analog, in the GLP-2 molecule, uh, it was approved by the FDA now perhaps about 10 years ago uh, as teduglutide. Um, uh, I will use the brand name here just for convenience and reference called GATEX, uh, distributed by Takeda, but going forward, I'll, I'll stick with the term teduglutide. Teduglutide uh, has a slightly longer half-life, about two hours or so, but is administered by once daily subcutaneous injection and was shown in the confirmatory randomized control trial, the STEPS trial, to improve intestinal absorption in patients with short bowel syndrome-associated intestinal failure. So that ultimately led to FDA approval. And I will just emphasize here that it is not simply one more antidiarrheal. Do not use it for your patient with short bowel syndrome who can be managed a, with, with simpler antidiarrheals that are much less expensive, that there's a lot more experience with and have fewer side effects. GLP-2 as approved currently to deglutide is a very safe drug, very efficacious drug if used safely and correctly. How does GLP-2 act? Uh, the obvious effects of GLP-2 are to increase villus height and crypt depth, 
But but we do believe GLP-2 has other effects. It uh, slows gastric emptying, it increases portal flow. And I'm no pharmacologist, but I do wonder to myself, a drug with a half-life of two hours that can be given by single daily injection, I have to believe this also exerts additional paracrine effects perhaps. And, and so it's a very interesting drug. In the STEPS trial, about two thirds of patients who got tenuglutide uh, were able to significantly decrease their PN volume, their parental nutrition volume. Uh, and, and what is significant for the purpose of that trial, a 20% reduction in uh, intravenous fluid or parental nutrition volume was accepted by the FDA as significant. Uh, additional studies, post-talk studies have shown that, that somewhere around 25% in our own single center uh, experience, close to two thirds of patients actually were able to come off parental nutrition completely, which of course is the holy grail of intestinal failure care. So GLP-2, uh, this discussion would not be complete without at least mentioning one or two potential side effects. I've alluded to the fact that it's a very safe drug, but given that technically it's a growth factor, it increases villocyte and crypt depth, we should say there has been concern about the propensity to increase the size of colonic polyps and even, even more the concern about nuance and neoplasia. Uh, more recent post hoc data, including some papers we have published have shown that perhaps the cancer risk is, is much less than originally feared. But nevertheless, the FDA requires, and it is just sound practice, to do baseline surveillance colonoscopy to make sure there are no polyps, to remove uh, any existing polyps. And certainly, the label uh, requires that patients with active malignancy in the GI tract uh, are not candidates for GLP-2 use. I will go a step further and say in my practice, anybody with an active malignancy, uh, active being defined as within the last five years is not a candidate for GLP-2. Wonderful, thank you. Incredibly useful information. So as we start to wind down here, what about the role of additional surgery? You've cautioned our listeners about the risks of surgery sometimes required, sometimes maybe not. But what about additional surgery? What about bowel lengthening techniques? Could these be used to wean people off TPN? Uh, great question. And, and, and finally, I can speak to my uh, really true roots. I am a surgeon after all. Um, so, so that said, I, every operation I start in a patient with short bowel, I, I love to ask the trainees, what is the most important thing we have to do? We have to not make the situation worse. The worst thing a surgeon can do for a patient with short bowel is to uh, inadvertently or injudiciously lose further bowel length. So there, that, and with that as our sort of guiding beacon, perhaps, there is a case for judicious and well-considered surgical options. And the single most beneficial surgical intervention in many of these patients is, is perhaps I would, I'll start at prevention of short bowel. Be very judicious about re removing marginal bowel in Crohn's, I don't need to state this. Uh, be extremely cautious, uh, use conservative strategies to deal with strictures and blind loops. Uh, be very careful about the decision to make a stoma. I tell people every time you create a stoma, you lose five centimeters of bowel, you take it down, you lose another five centimeters of bowel. Ask yourself, is that stoma really necessary? I, and, and 
it's much easier and safer in many situations to accept the need for additional second look operations multiple times if needed than to make ill-advised decisions uh, that are perhaps hasty and ultimately lead to a bad outcome. That said, uh, perhaps the single most important operation is, is to examine whether there is any residual bowel that can be salvaged. And the single most important situation this occurs in is perhaps retained left colon, retained um, left transverse colon and beyond in the patient who has 30 centimeters of jejunum with a high jejunostomy. In my book, that patient nearly always, I cannot think of a situation where that patient would not benefit from putting that bowel back together again. So is there risk to surgery? Of course, but is the benefit of recruiting that unused colon greater? A hundred percent. And especially in the current era of additional adjuvant therapies, if we may call that, such as GLP-2, the value of recruiting a unused bowel is massive. Then there are more specialized operations that you alluded to, the lengthening and tapering operations, the patient with, with a dilated loop of bowel and the whole issue of why does dilatation occur in patients with, with short bowel. You can take a teleologic view and say it's a compensatory mechanism. I suspect the answer is a little more complex. It may relate to watershed areas of marginal blood supply, but nevertheless, if that bowel has survived, it can be exploited and without getting into technical details, there are different surgical strategies that are perhaps best performed at specialized centers to, to taper this dilated segment without loss of surface area. And, and, and that ultimately is the lengthening. No true bowel is, no true additional bowel is created, but what you've succeeded in doing is taper dilated bowel without losing surface area. And yes, if, if we are so focused on length, if you do measure the length, you will record that you increase the bowel length. And then uh, that is the situation of the patient who has dilated bowel. What about the patient with rapid transit and no dilated bowel? This operation I think is underutilized, but there is a role for placement of an antiperistaltic segment, a reverse segment. And I will do this. I don't usually do this as a single operation, but if I'm there for some other reason, the patient with 30 centimeters of jejunum, left colon, and I'm going to take down that stoma and restore continuity, I would consider placing an antiperistaltic segment to reduce the risk of diarrhea. So there is a role for carefully considered exploitative surgery in short bowel, fully mindful, and this is not a simple uh, decision, a careful risk-benefit analysis. So let's consider, as we wrap up here, that patient with persistent symptoms, they've failed all types of medical therapy, maybe they've had complications from TPN, they're not a candidate for another surgery. Is that the patient we should refer for intestinal transplantation? A, a great question, and you set the stage perfectly. That patient absolutely should be referred for transplant. So I will, I will emphasize here that we don't simply offer intestine transplant for short bowel. And why is that? Intestine transplant outcomes have improved, have improved considerably. They're vastly better than say kidney transplant outcomes were at the same stage in 
in the procedure's history, but they're still not quite ready for prime time, they're getting there. That is the reason the standard of care for the patient who's failing with short bowel syndrome is the provision of parental nutrition. And, and, and outcomes for parental nutrition, for home parental nutrition, in the vast majority of adult patients are superb. And we should expect 90, 95% five-year survival for patients on home PN. Um, and and so, so that has become the gold standard and rightfully so. However, it is important to emphasize that that's not the outcome in all patients. And some patients, for, sometimes for reasons that are not completely clear, are prone to PN-associated complications, most frequently in the form of catheter-related complications, frequent catheter-related sepsis, Medicare defined that as at least two episodes in a year, or even a single episode of fungemia, or loss of venous access. We have just four upper extremity veins, central veins to put in a central venous catheter. And if that, those have to be replaced frequently, some patients lose access. And then of course, is the development of intestinal failure associated liver disease in the setting of PN. I still prefer the old fashioned term of parental nutrition associated liver disease. But fortunately, that's become less frequent, but the occurrence, even the onset of liver disease should begin a conversation about whether intestine transplant is appropriate because for some patients, intestine transplant outcomes are really quite good. And, and it's important to emphasize that intestine transplant is a dip difficult and important decision. Referral for evaluation does not commit anybody, not the patient, not the transplant center to performing the transplant, but that referral is important. Keyshore, this has really been just an amazing conversation. I learned a lot. I know our <laughs> listeners learned an awful lot. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Look, I, I, I tell my patients and, and people who know me know that 50% of what I say is in fun. Unfortunately, many people can't tell which 50, but I will say this, intestinal failure and short bowel, devastating di diseases. Uh, you know, as one patient said to me, uh, as I was trying to uh, improve his spirits and say, don't let your disease define you, he said to me, Name one thing you do socially that does not involve food and drink. And there's a lot to be said for that. So uh, A, um, your, pa your patient who's not doing well with routine food and drink, you owe it to the patient and to yourself to start thinking about intestinal failure and short bowel. This is a devastating disease. I could not imagine living like this. Fortunately for my patients and for the field, this is a good time to have the disease. There are many new and exciting therapies, outcomes for surgery, outcomes for transplant are improving. Though I'm a transplant surgeon, I tell people I'm like a foreman in a jiffy loop. Yes, transplants like replacing the engine, but we're now in a situation where perhaps a tweak of the oil and the change of the spark plug might be enough. Kishore, once again, thank you so much to our listeners. This is another great conversation on Gut Check. You've been listening to Dr. Kishore Iyer, a national and international expert in intestinal transplantation and professor of surgery and pediatrics at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Uh, tune in again in the near future for another great edition of Gut Check. Thank you so much. <music>